Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. As always, you're with Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University and Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Hi, Alan. Hey, Darren. It's Tuesday afternoon on the 13th of April today, and I want to note that we are about to reach another milestone. All going normally with this episode, we will cross 150,000 lifetime downloads, which is quite astonishing for us, and allow us to briefly express our thanks and deep appreciation to all of our audience for devoting the time that you do into listening to us. It's something that neither of us take for granted. And indeed, I think as listenership has grown, we've felt more and more pressure, Alan, uh, not to waste the time of of the thousands of you who tune in each week. Is that how you feel still? Indeed, indeed, absolutely. (laughs) Um, Well, today we're going to spend most of our time on Myanmar and all of the issues surrounding that terrible crisis. And then we'll finish off with a brief chat about Papua New Guinea and the COVID-19 crisis there and finish with a chat about the defence portfolio a bit more broadly given that we have a new defence minister. But we're going to begin with Myanmar, and I'm sure as everyone knows, on the 1st of February, the Tatmadaw, which is the country's military, undertook a coup and arrested Aung San Suu Kyi, uh, the leader of the National League for Democracy, the NLD party, which had won uh, its second landslide election victory um, after a first one about five years ago, a few months previously in late 2020. It also arrested the country's president, uh, Win Myint, and various other leaders. In the two months plus since then, the Tatmadaw has gradually ramped up a brutal suppression campaign of the civilian protests that have been challenging military rule. Hundreds have been killed, uh, including children. At the end of March, the UN Special Envoy for Myanmar said that, quote, a bloodbath is imminent, end quote, and the killing has indeed continued. And things could definitely get worse with more violence and perhaps even something like state failure. So, Alan, as we've discussed before, your first diplomatic posting was to Myanmar. So can I ask you again just to reflect on what's happening? Yeah, well, again, Darren, my overwhelming response is one of real sorrow for the Burmese people, um, admiration for the courage of the protesters and despair at the incapacity of Burmese leaders over more than half a century to manage the job of creating a workable state that delivers for its citizens. I think the NLD leadership also has to take some of the blame for this, but mostly, of course, it's Tatmadaw and the military. The tragedy this time around is that things were looking so much more promising than they had at any other point since independence. So when I was there as a very young diplomat under the military rule of General Nguyen, the country was almost entirely cut off from the world. It was an experience that I think would be impossible to replicate nowadays. Tourists could only go there for three days. Permission was needed for diplomats to leave the city of Rangoon. There was no television service. Uh, The newspapers were all owned by the government. But young Burmese now have had the experience of greater access to the world and as the demonstrators have shown, they know what they've got to lose this time around. Mm, yeah, it's very sad. And I, look, I confess that I knew very little about Myanmar prior to this coup. And so 
even in framing the questions for you today, listeners should be mindful that maybe I'll get things broadly correct, but even if then I'll be leaving out a lot of complexity. But there are a number of important dimensions to this crisis worth discussing. And let's keep our focus with internal politics in Myanmar. And there are three features I wanted to highlight. The first is that the genesis of this crisis does seem to be a decline in civil-military relations, with the NLD having achieved some success, I think, in recent years at beginning to erode some of the Tapmador's power and centrality to Burmese politics, despite the fact that the military is central, its power is centrally codified in the country's constitution. The second point is that the coup has, at the very least, I think, significantly eroded what political support among the broader population the military may have had. The protests have been accompanied by these nationwide strikes that are crippling the economy, and the opposition has become bolder with the alternative government, the CPRH, declaring the 2008 constitution invalid. Third point is that Myanmar is an ethnically diverse place. There are a number of armed insurgencies going on. And indeed, there is an entire Wikipedia page dedicated to these armed groups. If you go there, you'll see that there are nine different groups that are listed as active combatants, and more than that, who currently have ceasefires but still exist. So here's my query, Alan. Even if it's true that the military has lost a lot of its political support, or maybe nearly all of it, it still has most of the guns uh, and remains a potent force. And thus, I wonder whether apt comparisons can be drawn to the Taliban in Afghanistan at the end of 2001 or the Assad regime in Syria in 2014. You know, notionally bad guys, right, that the international community wants out of power, but which history has subsequently shown us held too much power to be excluded, right, that they held enough power and remained central to the political futures of both countries, whether we liked it or not. And so the question for this situation is, despite this awful violence, despite the crushing of democracy, is it the case that the world is going to have to negotiate with the Tatmadaw to solve the crisis? Or could the military, or at least its senior rulers, be defeated somehow or sidelined in some kind of palace coup? Now, we can't obviously answer that question here on the podcast, Alan, but I'm wondering if you can reflect on this question, whether it's the right one to be asking. You're right that it's a complicated country to govern and that many of the ethnic groups have long experience of operating outside central government control. They have access to quite powerful arsenals, some of them funded by smuggling and drugs. And uh, as in Syria, the democratic resistance uh, which people spoke of is overshadowed by groups with other agendas. But as to your question... It's really hard to see any answer that doesn't involve negotiating with the Tatmadaw. No doubt we'll get into the international response, but it's impossible to imagine any appetite for military intervention from outside. And at the same time, the army has long experience of sanctions and the country has porous borders. So I can't see sanctions or international opprobrium bringing about their downfall. That's not to say, of course, that a program isn't a necessary response and we shouldn't be piling it on. But sadly, comparisons with the Taliban and Assad seem seem valid to me. Mm. Before we turn to the international dimension, Alan, I, I wanted to pick up on something you said at the outset when you described your despair at the failure of the country's leaders to create a workable state. And you included both the Tatmadaw but also the NLD. 
Now, I've read a lot of criticism of the Tatmadaw as an institution, uh, and it's certainly, obviously, not consistent with democratic best practices for the military to play any kind of central role in politics. You know, that's not democratic. It's not a democratic institution. So from first principles, I can see I can see a logic where the military, you know, which has been a military dictatorship, that it holds on to power in a transitional phase into democracy. But then you would hope that over time, and again, I'm talking in an abstract sense, that civilian control would would slowly strengthen, right? And the military would slowly and slowly be pushed to the sidelines of politics over time. And it seems like, again, looking from a distance, that this is what the NLD was trying to do. And, and I've read some pieces and listened to some podcasts about various moves they made in terms of the politics of the country and the, and the reorganization of ministries and having certain meetings and not having other meetings and so forth. That that's what they were trying to do, that they were slowly pushing the military to the side. And look, I'm sure that they must bear some responsibility for the decline of civil-military relations, almost definitionally so, given how the military has reacted. But the point still is that you can see that there is some logic if you're looking to transition to a fully-fledged democracy. So, Alan, as someone who has watched the country's trajectory over half a century, did you ever think... No need quite to say that, Darren. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for the reminder, though. (laughs) I'll ask the question. Did you ever think that it could evolve and mature politically such that the armed forces one day would, you know, return to barracks? Uh, Well, I did, actually, because it's happened before in other places. Look at the way the Indonesian military handled the reform and democratisation process there after the new order uh, government fell. So, yes, I do think there were slow ways of making this happen. I think that was sort of implicit in the constitution that was drawn up and then the process that was already underway towards civilianisation. But All we know of Do Aung San Suu Kyi suggests that although she is a very courageous person, you might say adamantine in her commitments, she's not much of a politician, even within her own party, where there are problems within the NLD. So I've said this before, but it's worth repeating. It seems to me that Burma found a Gandhi but not the Nehru that they needed, the person who could understand and work with and compromise with the various forces to get the changes underway. So again, I don't want to be involved in moral equivalences here. Of course, the army is uh, responsible, but I did hope that more would come than has come of this. Yeah, look, I I take your point, Alan, and certainly understand that you're not doing anything other than criticising and and condemning what the military has done. But you are teasing a much longer and very interesting conversation. You know, the idea that there is very delicate sequencing, you might say, that civilian leaders need to follow when transitioning away from or military rule or some kind of autocratic rule. And that that pathway is full of landmines, right? And that in, in this case, the military is the former holders of power are going to be acutely sensitive and react very quickly when they perceive that their interests are too directly and, and immediately harmed. Yep. Very, very difficult thing. And I don't think you had made that Nehru-Gandhi comparison before. It's an interesting one to think about. But a conversation for another day. Let's turn to the international dimension then. And we'll start with the major powers. Let's remember that the Biden administration has made democracy a central pillar of its foreign policy. And meanwhile, in Beijing, you've got a country with significant commercial interests inside Myanmar. And thus, there's no way that Beijing is going to like this instability. 
but their influence is somewhat constrained by being generally unpopular inside the country due to their large economic footprint. So, Alan, how would you frame the policy challenge that each faces here? Well, the problem for the United States will be working out what it can do in the circumstances we've just described to operationalise its support for democracy. This is one of the first challenges for the Biden administration's human rights policies, and uh, we'll have to see what they do. So far, the administration, I think, has been impressive in the way it's brought together policy responses to development. Uh, China would much rather... Uh, not have to deal with this, I'm absolutely sure. It doesn't see this as a net benefit to its interests, despite some of the commentary you hear. And India, Burma's other big neighbour, faces roughly similar problems, and it seems to be responding by, you know, by and large, keeping its head down. Mm. So, look, I suspect that the result of all this is that there will be a tendency on the part of all those major external players to pass the ball as quickly as they can to ASEAN, at least in a rhetorical sense. That's interesting and actually gets to a point that I'm going to raise with ASEAN, but I'll get to that in a moment. Sticking with the two major powers, for me, China is a really fascinating question. China shares a border with Myanmar. And on one of the border cities, the Chinese have already locked down the city and have tried to seal the border. That's a border crossing that I understand has about 50,000 crossings daily because they're afraid of refugees, they're afraid of COVID-19, very difficult situation. Now, I agree that Beijing clearly disapproves of the military's actions, but obviously doesn't want to be making a strong case for the restoration of democratic rule. And it has helped shield the Tatmadaw to some extent at the United Nations Security Council. I've said this before, global leadership is hard. It's one thing to be bold in asserting your own interests, especially bilaterally, and China does that regularly now. It's quite another thing to play the role of global stabilizer in either the economic or the security spheres. It's a difficult and costly and often thankless task. And the US, as we know, has a very mixed record itself. The major successes of the post-war period, like stabilizing Western Europe and Japan, are balanced by decades of cynical and failed policies in much of the rest of the world. You know, Xi Jinping has said that Asian security should be left to the Asians alone, a clear signal that he wants the US out of the immediate region. Well, here is Beijing's opportunity, I suppose, to show that they can lead and be a positive force. You soon get to sovereignty in all this, don't you? I mean, we believe in sovereignty. Scott Morrison talks about it frequently. The UN endorses sovereignty, and sovereignty is central to China's position. So how, yes, how yeah. does that fit in here? I mean, it's a balancing act. As you say, it's central to the United Nations Charter. It's central to China's vision of international order, and ScoMo loves it as well. But I think even more central to the UN Charter, at least, is the maintenance of international peace and security. I don't think you need to invoke the more forward-leaning concepts like the responsibility to protect, R2P, might raise that a bit later. You don't need to go as far as that to agree that from time to time, internal turmoil that's normally the sovereign affairs of a given nation state, when it becomes you know, widespread political violence, can constitute a threat to international peace and security and, of course, you know, shock the conscience of the world. So in a case like Myanmar, which borders five different countries, has multiple armed insurgent groups that largely operate in those border zones, 
you've got the beginnings of a very clear case that the international community should take an interest. So leadership then is balancing the competing tensions of sovereignty and stability. US often got this balance wrong, but Washington did succeed as well. Now, China is one of those five bordering countries. So you would think that if it can't lead here, what is its capacity to exercise leadership over the full range of the charter, not just the sovereignty bits in other parts of the world? Mm, yeah. um, let's turn to ASEAN then. It's clear this is a challenge on some level for the ASEAN. The question is, how big a challenge? Is it an existential crisis, as some have claimed? And I've been intrigued by the internal debate in one ASEAN member state, Singapore, where senior members of the nation's foreign policy establishment have been publicly, albeit very gently and politely, at odds with one another. Uh, in one corner, you've got Bilahari Kausikan, uh, who has taken very much a realist perspective, arguing that there isn't a lot that ASEAN or anyone else for that matter can do um, other than to discuss the situation and make statements. But he wrote an article where he framed this as ASEAN doing sort of just enough to provide what he called an alibi for more concrete action, but not so much to alienate the Tatmadaw and foreclose ASEAN from playing a role in negotiating the country's political future. And that made me think of your statement earlier, Alan, when you said that the major powers would want to sort of palm this off to ASEAN as quickly as possible. So I think Bilahari would agree with that idea. The, the problem is being landed in ASEAN's lap and it needs to do just enough to give this sort of some, you know, an out to those major powers, but also maintain its, you know, its centrality and its relevance yeah. Um, yeah, as the country navigates its political future. Now, on the other corner, and it's not, they're not, let, let's not call them corners because they're not really that diametrically opposed, but you have a difference of opinion coming from Tommy Koh, um, another senior Singaporean diplomat who described himself in a Facebook post as being a pragmatic idealist. And he drew at least one contrast with Kalsakan in arguing that Aung San Suu Kyi did need to participate in future elections. So that's a clear policy, a potential policy distinction. I'm not sure if, if, if Bilahari has made his views clear on this. Anyway, Alan, I like that little microcosm of the debate. But how do you see ASEAN's challenge here? Is it an existential crisis? Well, it's certainly a test of their claims to centrality in regional structures, and that's, I think, one of the reasons why the Singaporean elite are getting involved in this, because they do see it uh, as an important test of what the rest of the world thinks of ASEAN. But I wouldn't say it's an existential crisis. They've dealt with worse, and the incentives for all of the members to hold together are, you've got to remember, very strong. You know, Southeast Asia in the pre-ASEAN days was a very different place from what it is now with several of the existing ASEAN members at war with each other. So, it, look, it can be a very frustrating organisation in some ways. Um, anyone who's had to deal with it over an extended period can, you know, in, in their private moments feel like slitting their wrists but it was only by ASEAN's capacity to wrap Myanmar in its own bubble wrap, I think, that we managed to get reform in Burma underway in the first place. The interests of all those other powerful states around it are too great and it suits everyone for ASEAN to be a way through. So, as I said before, I think the other major players are going to be looking to ASEAN first. 
Very interesting, especially your point about the incentives for all the members of ASEAN to stay together. I mean, I agree there are strong incentives, but I'm going to be repeating the themes that I've touched on previously. There are other incentives now and that we're in a world where the whole entire regional order is up for grabs. And I just wonder whether some of the more forward-leaning members of ASEAN, Indonesia and Singapore, I think primarily, but also I would add Malaysia to that list, um, the Philippines on, on some days at least, are asking themselves or need to ask themselves what kind of regional order do they want and how proactive do they need to be, whether as a collective organisation or as a smaller grouping or indeed individually sometimes, in order to achieve that. Is it credible that ASEAN could have the Burmese military holding membership of one of its member states alongside Cambodia, where you've got multiple states that have such a very different vision of the regional order and would be willing to veto any kind of action? Now, maybe that's okay in the sense that maintaining the principle of non-interference and maintaining some sense of ASEAN unity is the most important priority for all of the states, including the forward-leaning ones. But I just think that what made sense in the Cold War and in the post-Cold War period doesn't make as clean a sense now and that there are these new interests. And Myanmar is another example of where you might see a divergence between or at least pressure on the idea of unity coming from other sets of interests regarding the shape of the overall order. Yeah, I think you sort of overestimate the way in which Indonesia, which is the most important player in ASEAN, is willing to act. We've certainly seen Singapore out in front as a sort of gadfly in, in all of this, but I think the others are quite a long way behind where Singapore would like to be. And it's important to uh, to sort of understand the dynamics of those bigger, slower countries in the hinterland. Yeah, I heard it framed, um, I'll respect Chatham House rules if ever formally imposed them, but on our Clubhouse chat last week, we talked about this. And, and one of the points that was raised was you've got the regional summits coming up later in the year, the ASEAN summit and the East Asia summit, et cetera. And, and the idea was floated. There's no way Joe Biden would go to one of these big meetings and sit two or three seats down from the general of the Myanmar military sitting in that seat. And so if you want... The United States to be involved in the region and Biden's your best chance in four plus years to get a positive American involvement, you can see a clash of interests. Again, not that Indonesia is going to be that forward leaning or anyone other than Singapore, but at least you can see the conflicts between non-interference and ASEAN unity with a vision of the new order or whatever that might look like with trade-offs becoming larger, I think. Finally, let's turn to Australia. Our criticism has been somewhat muted internationally, perhaps in part because of our own citizens who are at risk, especially uh, the imprisoned academic uh, Sean Turnell. The former Foreign Minister, Gareth Evans, uh, has called for the principle of the responsibility to protect to apply here. What are our interests, Alan, and can we be a positive force? You're right about the constraints on Australian policy. The government properly won't want to endanger the position of Australian citizen Sean Turnell, who was Aung San Suu Kyi's economic advisor and reportedly central to her government's economic reform efforts. It's also going to have in mind more than Washington will, for example, the way this is going to play out in among our ASEAN neighbours. So it'll be monitoring views in regional capitals carefully. We've already made decisions about the very small amount of military assistance we were giving them. This was directed towards helping the army understand its relationship with civilian governments. And 
obviously wasn't a huge success as one of, as one of our road programs. We now have to make a decision about civilian aid and, and here, as always, the question at any time really is how you avoid punishing the long-suffering civilians for the sins of the military without at the same time making it easier for the military. And the Foreign Minister, Maurice Payne, has also said we're thinking about sanctioning military figures in addition to the five generals who are already under sanctions for actions against the Rohingyas. This discussion has all been about how difficult it is to see a way through here, but I really do hope that Australia won't give up and that we can be, as you put it, a positive force. Look, of all the big players, it seems to me that Japan has the knowledge and interests and position that might help most. You know, they have a long-standing relationship with Tatmadaw, uh, as a number of the leaders of the independence movement were trained by the Japanese. So I just wonder whether there's any encouragement we can give to Tokyo or work we can do together with them to help support ASEAN in this. Now, maybe that's already happening, but I think Japan is the most interesting of those big external players. What about the fact that there is this alternative government now, the CRPH, I may have said CPRH, but it's the CRPH that's sort of been formed by the civilian political leaders, I'm assuming sort of largely from the NLD. Does that provide an opportunity for the Australian government? Look, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Um, have they sought foreign recognition yet? I, I, I don't know. I don't think I haven't seen anything saying that. I didn't think they yet had, but this has a really interesting angle for the Morrison government, which few people think about. Back in 1988, the uh, the Hawke government, when Bill Hayden was foreign minister, decided that Australia was no longer going to recognise governments. It would only recognise states. This meant that if there was a coup in Fiji, for example, Australia didn't have to make a decision to recognise the government because we already recognised the state. We, we had to work out how we were going to deal with the new government, but we didn't have to take that formal step of recognition. Now, for Australian governments and diplomats, I always believed that this was an important and helpful change. But in January 2019, the policy changed, although it wasn't specifically stated to have changed. Presumably after a request from the Trump administration, Maurice Payne announced that Australia formally was recognising Juan Guaido as the interim president of Venezuela. Now, as I say, there was no mention in her press release that this was a change of policy. And so far as I know, it remains Australia's position. So we've shifted back. And whereas in the past, we would have been able to say that this was not an issue for us, the decision to recognise the government because we recognise that there is a Myanmar and that's all we had to do. We then have to say how we'll deal with the government. So we're now going to be in the difficult position if we do recognise the TRPH what do we do if the ASEAN members continue to let the military government sit in on ASEAN meetings? Do we have to boycott ASEAN meetings because we don't recognise one of the governments? Donald Rothwell, the international law expert from the ANU, wrote a really prescient piece for the Lowy interpreter at the time of the Venezuela decision, which we can link to. 
Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay, Alan, well, let's wrap up and, and move on to our final two items. Second is Papua New Guinea, where the country is dealing, as everyone will know, with a horrendous COVID-19 outbreak. It's hard to get a sense of the number of cases because testing is low, with official numbers still below 10,000, I believe. But I've seen estimates going well beyond that, even into the hundreds of thousands of cases. So far, Australia has sent 8,000 vaccine doses and more recently has announced that 144 million of the 500 million for vaccine rollouts that we'd pledged to the Indo-Pacific will go to PNG. And from the 19th of April, 10,000 locally made vaccines will be shipped weekly to PNG and Timor-Leste. We've also sent an emergency response team and needed equipment. Alan, there's normally less for us to talk about uh, when you have a sort of a quote-unquote standard humanitarian crisis. You you hope that Australia will do everything it can, um, but there are four wrinkles here. The first is just the scale. It apparently is very, very bad. And many are warning of the collapse of the country's health system. And it's a country that already has a very, very low ratio of doctors to population. Second, you have the potential trade-off between helping Australians and helping Papua New Guineans. You know, until every Australian who wants a vaccine can get one, the Morrison government will, I suppose, be exposed to the critique that every vaccine going north is, is at the expense of an Australian. Although this might be complicated, dare I say eased, I don't know, given the shifting policies that the government's taken towards the AstraZeneca vaccine. Third, you have the strategic context of China, of course, which is vying for influence alongside Australia in the country. And finally, you've got the outsized role of of COVID-19 disinformation on social media, mostly on Facebook, as I understand it, and how the PNG population seems especially vulnerable. Alan, what's the mix here of moral responsibility and strategic imperative? You just summed it up pretty well, I think. Um, Of all the parts of the Pacific, PNG is obviously the one that matters most to us for all sorts of reasons, including geographic proximity and historical ties. It's also the largest and most complex of all the Pacific states. So a COVID catastrophe on our doorstep is going to have huge consequences. On the other hand, as you point out, the uh, government is under pressure on the home front to put Australians first. All the government's rhetoric on the Pacific step up suddenly has taken on a real urgency here. So it's not going to be just a question of whether we can get X thousand doses of vaccine in. It's also going to be the role we can play in helping the PNG government get this vaccine out into the country as a whole. So there's big operational dimension to this as well. Mm. Uh, Two points from me. Many have noticed that the Australian aid budget has been increasing lately, though the government does not want to talk about it. But I think if if focusing our aid on impact rather than aid for aid's sake and and linking the need to that of our closest neighbours and linking that need to Australia's core interests and maybe framing them through the challenge of something like COVID-19, like if all these things together, if that leads to a larger aid budget that begins to redress the years and years of cuts, then I'll take it. You know, If I remember correctly, last year's aid budget, there was a slight decrease in the overall top line aid number, but there was this separate bucket of hundreds of millions of dollars that was there for COVID-19, which a reasonable person could wonder, isn't that just part of our aid bucket? Um, but look, if the impact is more money goes out to people who need it, then look, I'll take it. And I wonder whether that is 
a pathway into the medium term, framing specific issues, sometimes through the lens of strategic competition, sometimes through the lens of other national interests around COVID-19 in this case, that that could be a boon for our overall generosity. That would be a positive thing, I think. Um, it just it might be a, a political solution, especially for those governments who really are ideologically reluctant to throw the money around uh, as they might see it. Secondly, this disinformation angle is interesting. For all our own hand-wringing on the impact of social media in Australia and in the industrialised world, I think this one case is a reminder that there, for many of the most underdeveloped countries that lack governing institutions and technical capacity to handle key policy challenges, that social media and disinformation are another thing to add to that list. And I want to recommend um, a great podcast by the Lowy Institute recently with Papua New Guinea's health minister, Jelta Wong, who explained the nature of the problem of disinformation very well. To me, it seems that tighter regulation is an inevitable part of the solution. And perhaps if the pandemic is a good entry point for Australia to lend its support to the governments of Papua New Guinea and others in the region, as they lead a conversation with tech companies about their social responsibilities, then, then that would be another silver lining to this crisis. Yeah, I think that that's a really interesting dimension on it, Darren. All right, let's wrap up with our final item, Alan. Australia has a new defence minister. Uh, Peter Dutton has moved from Home Affairs to take the portfolio from a controversy-stricken Senator Linda Reynolds. Alan, I thought this might be a nice opportunity to hear your thoughts on the defence portfolio generally, because it's often seen as a bit of a political graveyard. And why I think you might call him a star performer, he's been a very successful politician in Peter Dutton, because at one point he was very close to becoming Prime Minister, why he might want the job. By way of framing my introduction here, I wanted to quote a tweet from Andrew Davies of the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, ASPE, a few weeks ago. Quote, I was asked what defence would think about Minister Dutton. The answer is easy. The way they think about any new defence minister. They'll either get what they want now or wait him out and get it later. End quote. So, Alan, can you talk us through the dynamics of the defence portfolio, why so many seem to have failed? And indeed, why those who succeeded did so? You know, what is the challenge facing Peter Dutton and might he have the capacity to buck the trend? Although it seldom has historically led on to greater things, the Defence Ministry is attractive to political leaders because it's important and big and has lots of money. But those same qualities also contain the dangers in the job. Because it's important, you can't hide, and you're going to be confronted from time to time with challenging decisions. So you're going to, you know, people will know what you're made of in the defence portfolio. Secondly, because it's big, you can be absolutely certain as minister that something is going to go badly wrong every single day. Lots and lots of young men particularly uh, scattered all over the world. There's always something uh, going wrong and you don't know what it's going to be. And if you handle it wrongly, then you can get into trouble. And finally, because it has lots of money, you're going to find yourself managing some of the biggest programs in the Commonwealth, uh, such as the, uh, the submarines. And that has within it enormous potential for things going badly wrong as well. You're also dealing with the ADF, now, the ADF is a formidable, how would you describe it, 
power base, uh, trade union, uh, custodian of the national ledger. <laughs> you can already see in Peter Dutton's early statements and actions a strong determination that he's not going to be on the wrong side of that divide. The ADF leadership, in my experience, is really of the highest calibre. They have a much better record than the civilian public service in ensuring that the very best people reach the top, but they can be very difficult for political leaders to deal with. I'm not sure how you would characterise those who have been successful and those who have been unsuccessful, but the only one I have ever seen who has been truly happy was Kim Beasley. Kim was the only occupant of the position in my time who greeted every day in the portfolio as though all his life's yearnings had been fulfilled. <laughs> and uh, all, all these years later, it only takes a very short conversation with the Governor of Western Australia to uh, get back to his deep you know, personal interest in all these issues. Interesting. When you were talking about something going wrong at any given moment of, of any given day, I thought back to, back to our interview with Rebecca Skinner, who at the time was the Associate Secretary of Defence back in the, I think it might be episode 21 uh, yeah. for those listeners who are interested and some of the funny stories and challenges that she as sort of an operations manager had to deal with. Yeah, you can only imagine thousands of young men at any given point in time, someone is doing something they shouldn't be doing and ultimately it's going to land on the senior leader's desk. Uh, but I wanted to pick up on one point you said then, Alan, if it is true that the ADF has a better record than the civilian public service of ensuring that the very best people reach the top, like why would that be? My instinctive reaction would be to guess that it's perhaps because of this aura around the military that it gives more security to its leaders and to its up-and-coming leaders to act. Um, you know, I've certainly heard it said that a certain kind of bureaucrat tends to do well in the APS, in the civilian public service. And it's not someone who is creative and, and bold and innovative, not a leader who'll take risks and, and reach for the stars, right? And I mean, am I being unfair in that characterization or, or what do we need to make the APS more like the ADF? Hmm, interesting. Um, I, I, don't, I don't think the APS needs to become more like the ADF. Um, the range of qualities you're looking for in your top military leaders are much more specific and limited than those you need across the APS from huge service delivery to treasury boffins and so on. The military have a unified system which enables them to test their people over a long period. They have the resources, and this gets back to the money point, to offer extensive periods of training. So they've really put their top people through training that um, the APS just would never be able to expect. Uh, they can be more directive in their postings, of course. They can say, this you know, young person here needs to have done these other jobs and yes. then we'll see whether he's uh, ready to reach the top. And despite my admiration for the ADF leadership, I'm, I am not sure that even they would claim that the top ranks of our services are full of people who are willing to take risks and, re and reach for the skies. <laughs> I think there are bureaucratic realities in the uh, military hierarchy as well. Okay, fair enough, Alan. Well, let's turn to our final segment, reading, listening and watching. What do you have for us this week? Uh, I was reminded of my recommendation by another development that we might have discussed uh, this week, which is the participation of the Australian, Indian, Japanese and American navies 
a week or so ago in a French-led naval exercise, Operation La Perouse in the Bay of Bengal. So that reminded me of the relevance of French security policy in our region. And so by a long stretch, I come to my recommendation, which is the terrific French series, The Bureau, which is now all six series on uh, SBS On Demand. Uh, Everyone I know has already seen this, so I'm probably speaking to an audience who's already well familiar with it. But the series deals with the operational part of the French External Intelligence Service, the DGSE. Uh, Its real enjoyment for me comes not so much from the way it deals with the familiar tropes of intelligence fiction, though it's, you know, it's very good at those fingernail-biting moments as well, but more from the way it incorporates the realities of bureaucratic life in a way that will be familiar to anyone who's worked in the public service, whether at the intelligence end of it or, or not. What about you? Uh, Well, I have been doing a lot of reading in recent weeks, Alan, uh, but not so much for pleasure, but because I'm teaching a brand new course this semester for the ANU's National Security College in their Master of National Security Policy program. Uh, The course is called Geoeconomics and National Security, and thankfully over 50 students have signed up. And I'm, of course, I'm teaching everything online because I'm out uh, out of Australia at the moment. Um, and they're all, all listening to the podcast, of course, too. I, 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 I recommend hi everybody recommend for the week. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Um, there, every time you teach a new course, there are very high fixed costs because you're building everything from scratch. But it's been very useful already to me in my own research uh, to gather my thoughts on geoeconomics in one place. I mean, because that's really my primary field of research these days. One of the other pleasures is having an excuse to, to reread some of the classics in the field. And so in that spirit, I want to recommend, to my mind, what is the foundational text in the field of geoeconomics. And it's a book published in 1945 called National Power and the Structure of Foreign Trade. And the, it was written by Albert Hirschman at the tender age of 30. And you only need to read the first two chapters, but they are an absolute masterclass in linking the economic and the strategic spheres and showing how the trade instrument in particular can be wielded uh, to advance state power objectives. Now, I won't link to the book directly because I'm not sure it's still under copyright, um, but if you navigate to the Google Scholar website and do a search for the book National Power and the Structure of Foreign Trade, uh, you should be able to find a PDF of it pretty quickly. One final point, Hirschman would have turned 106 last week, and there was a terrific thread about his life on Twitter, written by an economist, I believe, which I'll link to. And I just wanted to say that by the age of 25, he had already fought fascism in four countries, Germany, France, Spain, and Italy, and picked up two graduate degrees along the way. So some nice context for those of us out there making our way in the world, a truly remarkable individual. Okay, that's all for today's episode of Australia in the World. We thank AIIA intern Dominique Yap for her help with research and audio editing today. And as always, also thanks to Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. Thank you and talk to you again soon.